0: Hello, and welcome to the SWIB Podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB.
1: And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast,
0: volatility is a word that has become all too common the last couple years when talking about the financial markets over the past two years the pandemic has been a big economic story driving both monetary and fiscal policy while the pandemic continues to create hurdles new concerns are grabbing headlines from supply chain issues to the great resignation to the highest inflation rate in four decades investors have to navigate volatile economic waters
1: As the Federal Reserve seeks to put the right policies in place to combat the economic challenges investors are facing, SWIB is also keeping a close eye on what it all means when it comes to short- and long-term impact on the Wisconsin retirement system. Today we're going to talk to SWIB Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer Edwin Denson and Leo Kropowjanski, a Senior Portfolio Manager with SWIB's Asset and Risk Allocation Division, about what all these headline-grabbing issues mean for the WRS. We will get an update on just how the trust funds are performing midway through 2022 and what the rest of the year is looking like. And we'll also get their perspective on what the long-term outlook is for the financial markets. The
0: SWIB podcast is a regular opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin Retirement System. Please make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your fellow WRS members and leave a review on iTunes so it's easier for other members to find the show.
1: Today, we welcome back to the SWIB podcast, SWIB Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer Edwin Denson. Edwin joined SWIB in 2018 as a Managing Director for Asset and Risk Allocation. He was appointed Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer in April 2021. Before joining SWIB, Edwin was Managing Director Strategic Tilting at the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. And prior to that, Edwin spent 13 years in asset allocation, currency, and risk management as a portfolio manager at William Blair & Company, managing member at Singer Partners, LLC, and managing director and head of asset allocation at UBS Global Asset Management. Earlier in his career, Edwin was an economist at Lehman Brothers, Primark Decision Economics, and Putnam Investments, and he also briefly managed a commodity trading advisor and a quantitative equity strategy. Edwin holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Cornell University and a PhD in economics from Northwestern. And joining
0: Edwin today is SWIB Senior Portfolio Manager, Leo Kropivianski. Leo joined SWIB in 2019. Before joining SWIB, Leo was Managing Director of Economic Research at Element Capital Management. Prior to that, Leo spent 22 years as an economist at WCG Management, Putnam Investments, Decision Economics, Lehman Brothers, and with the Bank of Portugal. Earlier in his career, Leo served as a research assistant with the U.S. Federal Reserve Board. Leo holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Dartmouth College and a PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Edwin and Leo, welcome to the SWIB podcast. Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, great to be here. Looking forward to it.
0: Edwin, we're recording this episode of the SWIB podcast in early August. So we have passed the halfway point in 2022, and the markets are in a very different place than they were at this time last year. In 2021, the markets were really running hot. This year, volatility seems to be the word to best describe what we're seeing and unfortunately, negative returns. Can you talk about how the trust funds are performing to this point in 2022?
3: I sure can. As you pointed out, it's been a very tough year for capital markets in general. And as we will talk a little bit more about further in the podcast, one of the unfortunate parts of that unfortunate dynamic is that fixed income in general has not been providing the same kind of diversification as it historically has, at least over the last couple of decades. So typically in periods where equities go down in price and credit sells off, you're Fixed income securities, you know, in particular U.S. Treasury securities, tend to do well. And actually, uh, we have not seen that. We've seen all major asset classes sell off year to date. And in particular, all of the asset classes and sub-asset classes that constitute the policy for the CTF have all provided negative returns. Where we stand now is we're about down 10% year to date. That is better than we were in the middle of June. In the middle of June, we were at a point where we were down almost 15%. So we have had a bit of a recovery there. As the equity market has recovered, the S&P was down about 23% in mid-June and stands at about minus 14% today. So we've had a nice rebound there. And in addition, those treasury yields that I explained are behaving in a way that's very different than we've seen over the last 20 years. Those got as high as almost three and a half percent in mid-June and have come back down to about 2.8%. So I've gotten a little bit of a respite here. Over the last six weeks, I'd say, but still, nonetheless, along with capital markets, the CTF is in negative territory.
1: Edwin, I think a lot of people are looking at the markets right now and saying, wait a minute, what changed? Why are the global stock markets performing so differently this year compared to last year? And is it as simple as just pointing to the lingering effects of the pandemic, geopolitical events like the war in Ukraine, and uncertainty over how the Federal Reserve is going to respond to everything that's impacting the economy?
3: It's really the last factor that you brought up that's been the most important in explaining what's been going on with capital markets. It's the Federal Reserve, and not just the Federal Reserve, but also central banks globally. And as we all know, what facilitated that was the Precipitous rise in inflation that we saw last year, that was believed by many to be pretty transitory in nature, meaning that it wouldn't be very long lasting. And the Federal Reserve believed that. Many researchers believed that. Many of the experts believe that. Although they did know that there was a chance that it could remain perniciously high for longer than they were expecting. And unfortunately, that's what we saw. Inflation remained higher for longer than was expected. And so the Federal Reserve and, again, other central banks around the world had to revise their plans and make those plans evident to capital markets in terms of the actions they would have to take to help counter the increase in inflation and try to keep long-run inflation expectations well anchored. And so specifically for the United States and for the Fed, what that meant was basically a sea change in the expectation for where the Federal Reserve would take interest rates in October October, November, December of last year, and not just only where they would take it eventually, but the speed with which that normalization would happen. That's really what's explained what's going on. Firstly, fixed income markets, in particular, treasury yields reflected that change in expectation for Federal Reserve behavior almost instantaneously. And then with a lag, as the Fed actually started to act, say, in March of this year and April, you started to see risky assets actually reflect that reality. And so that's when the serious downturn in the equity market really began and the troubles that we had started to see in credit markets. So really, that is the big story is persistent inflation requiring central bank action, removal of a formerly accommodative monetary policy. And- not only removal of accommodative policy, but even signaling the potential to need to move into deliberately restrictive territory. And now, of course, these other dynamics popped up, your Russia evasion of Ukraine and a couple of other things. But really, the main backdrop was heightened inflation and then expectations for central bank action, which have largely been unaffected by the other dynamics that you mentioned.
0: Leo, can you talk a little bit about the impact China has had on the global economy and on the broader macroeconomic trends we're seeing? Sure.
2: So again, some of the inflationary problems we have been seeing have been due to so-called supply chain difficulties where manufacturers globally are having trouble sourcing inputs, many of which are imported from places like China and other parts of East Asia. So we did have a bit of a global shock early this year that complicated the supply picture even further. And that was what was a pretty serious COVID outbreak within China and most notably in Shanghai, which is a very large manufacturing and export center. So we did see a period of time where Chinese industrial production was falling outright. Some of the exports from China to the rest of the world were falling outright, essentially because the authorities responded to this COVID outbreak with what were very strict lockdowns. So fortunately, that COVID outbreak has passed. Our view is it's not going to have much incremental impact on global supply chains. And the signs are the exports, the industrial production from China are recovering. So barring another COVID outbreak or other shock, our view is there's not going to be much incremental inflationary impact from the rest of the world.
0: Given all these different issues impacting the global economy, is there a reason to remain optimistic and invested in stocks despite the struggle to make money in the markets that we've encountered so far this year?
2: There's no question that stocks have performed very poorly after reaching a peak late last year and about December. We're in a period where central banks globally, not just the Fed, are deliberately raising interest rates pretty aggressively in order to head off inflation, bring inflation back under control. It's an unfortunate fact that the way you bring inflation under control is by slowing down economic growth. There's kind of no two ways about it. As a result, we're probably going to be seeing slower earnings growth for stocks for a period of time. And it's understandable that investors have become more nervous about holding on to risky assets stocks. I think we started from a position where stocks were what we consider extremely overvalued. They were due for a correction. We think that the declines that have occurred in equity markets year to date have brought most global equity markets back to somewhere much closer to fair value. Further declines are going to be possible if the US does slip into sort of an outright recession. Our view is that these things could go lower. We don't view them yet as being very compellingly cheap. But we can for sure say that with a lot of that overvaluation removed, the prospective return that investors are going to see on equities over the next five, 10 years are much more attractive than they were, let's say, back in December.
0: So when stocks struggle, we usually see investors run to bonds for safety. Is that
3: what's happening now? Is there a safe haven for investors? Well, again, unfortunately, what we've seen so far this year is that there really hasn't been a safe haven. Bonds have not acted as they typically had over the last two decades. As inflation has remained under control in most developed economies, stocks and bonds had moved in opposite directions, particularly when equities had trouble, when there were acute problems in the markets, both equity markets and credit markets, you got some diversification and benefit from holding bonds because bond yields would typically decline in those environments. And then also over the last 20 years, the way the dynamic worked is as stock prices rose and economies recovered, bond prices would decline only slightly. Yields would only increase a little bit as central banks gradually raised interest rates. And typically we were seeing central banks move from being accommodative with their policy to being more neutral. We never really saw too many cases where any central bank felt the need to move into deliberately restrictive territory in terms of monetary policy, you know, in efforts to slow the economy, as Leo referenced. And when recessions, you know, again, stocks fell, bonds rose, and central banks would tend to cut interest rates to support economies. In what a lot of folks came to call the Fed Put, and so the idea there was that there was only so far that risky assets, again, like stocks and credit markets, could fall before the Federal Reserve would step in and kind of come to the rescue with monetary policy action of one form or another, whether it was lowering the federal funds rate or engaging in quantitative easing. But again, over the last year, because inflation has not only surprised to the upside and it's also remained stubbornly high The Fed has signaled that it's now going to and has started to increase interest rates pretty aggressively and has also, again, communicated that if it sees the need to do so, we'll move into restrictive territory and try to slow demand. And so as expectations for Fed action for short-term interest rates have risen dramatically, bond prices and bond yields have moved higher to reflect that. So we have a very different dynamic than anything we've seen in the last several decades, where it's actually higher interest rates that are now causing the market to fall. And the notion that the Federal Reserve would come in anytime soon to sort of come to the rescue has been put off to the side because the new dynamic of actually having high and sustained inflation, again, that's beyond the Federal Reserve target, as Leo's pointed out, the same dynamic is happening at many places around the world. Most of the developed economies are suffering from the same dynamic. And, you know, the lesson of the last 20 or 30 years is that there's a great benefit to having long-term inflation expectations anchored and central banks are putting high priority on taking actions now to make sure that longer-term inflation expectations do indeed remain anchored. And unfortunately, that could mean moving into Restrictive territory in terms of monetary policy and even engineering uh, recessions. I mean, I think we just saw in the UK that the Bank of England raised interest rates fairly aggressively in the face of an economy that is already falling into recession, specifically because of the need to keep long run inflation expectations well anchored.
1: So I know we talked about some of the geopolitical issues in play here, but can we dig in a little bit more on some of the causes for volatility that we're seeing? I mean, one thing that Edwin discussed there was the inflation. It's grabbed a lot of headlines and certainly it's on everyone's mind. And Edwin, you said that inflation is the highest that it's been in decades. In fact, it's The highest that it's ever been in my lifetime so leo can you talk a little bit about what kind of effect inflation can have on an economy because i've never seen inflation like this in my lifetime what does inflation like that do to an economy
2: yeah so i think again the real big immediate takeaway is you know when you have high inflation which as you say many of us have not experienced in a very long time You have a situation where the Fed simply has to react. Their number one job is to fight inflation. They have a dual mandate where they need to keep an eye on full employment as well. But when inflation is out of control, they really have not much choice but to really tighten interest rates, try to slow demand enough to bring inflation under control. So, I think the first and biggest implication, particularly for investors, is high inflation means a quite active Fed, more active than many of us have seen in a long time. And this kind of pernicious correlation where bond prices are going down, equity prices going down. And in some sense, there's at least for a period of time nowhere for investors to hide. Now, for households, obviously, inflation has very big implications. We know that inflation is something that sort of disproportionately affects the less well off households among us, those who most of their monthly income is going towards rent, groceries, and so forth. They're not big savers. So, obviously, it can have pretty serious social implications. And, you know, in addition to that, we have a period where Wages are growing in nominal terms pretty robustly, but because of the inflation, workers in real terms really aren't getting ahead. So there's all around a lot of reasons, whether you're an investor or whether you're just, as we all are, a consumer and a worker, why it becomes very, very important for the Fed to bring this inflation genie back into the bottle once it's unfortunately escaped the way it has over the last year or so
3: this higher inflation that we're seeing and the tighter central bank policies are not just a phenomenon here in the us it's truly a global phenomenon almost every country we track we have seen an increase in actual inflation from 2020 to 2021 and in all cases there's an expectation that the inflation we will see in 2022 so for the balance of this year it will be even higher than what we saw in 2021. And again, that is what's behind the view that in the marketplace, central banks will be moving to tighter policy and why we've seen an increase in government bond yields almost everywhere the headwinds that we've seen to equity you know not just in the us and not just in the developed world but really worldwide and emerging markets too now the one silver lining to all of this and leo alluded to it is that now that bond yields have moved higher and now that equities have become more attractive in price terms because the prices have come down those forward-looking returns for both of those asset classes have moved up meaningfully so again over the next five to ten years we would expect to get better returns from stock and bonds than we would have thought or expected a year ago.
0: So what effect is the Federal Reserve's efforts to tighten economic growth and control inflation having? And can the Fed's efforts create a soft landing or is a recession inevitable? Is it on the horizon?
2: I would say not inevitable, but it's going to be very tricky to achieve that soft landing. So the Fed has already, over the course of this year, raised the federal funds rate by 150 basis points. The market expects that they will go another 175 or so by the end of the year. This is really a very, very large and a very rapid tightening of interest rates by historical standards. You kind of have to go back to the Volcker era in the early 1980s to find something comparable. This degree of tightening certainly raises the risks that we're going to have a very sharp slowdown in economic growth and maybe even a recession. So thinking through some numbers, what you would call kind of normal or what economists call potential growth for the United States is sort of one and three quarter to two percent GDP growth. Right now, the consensus forecast is still for what we would call a soft landing, where we have sort of growth of two percent or around potential this year, a dip to about one percent growth in 2023. So still growing, not the economy shrinking outright, but growing below potential. If we, in fact, are gonna achieve something like that, maybe we grow at 1% for a year or two, we could probably call that a soft landing. I don't think it's completely off of the table as a possibility, but we are certainly flirting with the possibility that we've got outright contractions in GDP, perhaps over the course of this year, or perhaps even in 2023. So it is an unfortunate fact that you almost have to have a period of slow growth to fight inflation. And sometimes you have to have an outright recession to fight inflation. So from our view, it remains a live possibility. We do think if that recession occurs, it is probably going to create more opportunities and risky assets like equities and credit. But I think most folks are probably cheering for the Fed that we can achieve that soft landing. It's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to be able to do it.
0: And just so everyone understands, Leo, can you explain the differences between a soft landing and a recession?
2: So I would define, and I think it's probably a reasonable definition, a perfect soft landing would be We've been growing very rapidly in the recovery from COVID. We've been recording rates of growth well above 2%. I'd say a perfect soft landing would mean we kind of just go down to that one5 or 2% rate and run there for a while. I'd say that looks very, very unlikely at this point. We're already beginning to record much slower growth than that. A semi-soft landing at this point would qualify as, let's say, 1% GDP growth for a couple of years rather than the call it 2% that's a normal. And then, as I just noted, you know, there's every possibility of outright recession. That would certainly be outright declines in GDP on an annual basis, which remains a live possibility at this point.
1: Another topic we see making headlines this year has been the supply chain. And so not only do items cost more, but in some cases they're harder to find on store shelves, lead times are getting longer, things are just not in stock. So have we started seeing an easing with the supply chain pressures, Leo?
2: Yeah, I think we've been looking at this issue a few different ways, looking at a lot of indicators of supply chain pressure. And I guess the good news is that those supply chain pressures probably peaked in summer of last year, just about a year ago, 2021. So they're at least moving in the right direction in terms of things like shipping container rates, various measures of commodity prices manufacturers reports of sort of the inventories of inputs they have on hand and so forth. It's moving in the right direction, but those supply chain pressures still remain very severe by any historical standard. So there's going to be still some time before they're fully worked out. I think in our view, it could certainly take another year. And, you know, those things have been working themselves out since last summer. But we had some fresh problems arise, particularly due to the Ukraine-Russia conflict early this year, which brought a lot of renewed pressure to both food and energy prices. Obviously, Russia, a big energy supplier to Europe and really to the entire world and both Ukraine and Russia, very important agricultural producers and producers of fertilizer. In my view, the supply chain pressures are certainly taken longer to unwind than anybody might have imagined 18 months ago. They're moving in the right direction. We think they're going to keep moving in the right direction, but it's been a very, very gradual process.
0: So as we worked our way through the height of the pandemic in early 2020, what effect did the lockdowns have on production and retail sales?
2: We're sort of two years on from this, but we should remind ourselves the very high degree of uncertainty that every household and every business was facing as the pandemic was beginning. We had no real clear sense of how long it would last, how quickly vaccines would be developed to what extent economies could provide sort of fiscal support to keep things afloat during the course of the early pandemic. And as a consequence, you had firms, you know, they were facing potentially a near death kind of experience. If you really don't know if you're going to have customers, how long this pandemic is going to last, the rational response is to cut your inventories to lay off a lot of people and prepare for what might have been you know, a very long period of hibernation. The good news is those very worst pandemic outcomes weren't realized. We had, certainly in the United States and a lot of other developed countries, governments coming with very large fiscal stimulus to sort of keep economies afloat. And we wound up developing viable vaccines really by the end of 2020 that were going into the arms of the first receivers of those, which were healthcare providers. That was an amazing turnaround on the part of vaccine researchers to have within one year viable mRNA vaccines. There were many experts that thought it would take years to develop those vaccines. So I think as a consequence of the fiscal stimulus, the vaccines being developed, you had what was really a pretty amazing rebound in the economy. We were in falling off a cliff in February, March, April, May, and by June and July of 2020, the economy is just roaring. And I think the irony of it is that very defensive stance that firms took, laying off people, cutting inventories. They were suddenly caught off guard when the economy came roaring back. And they're still trying to kind of resolve some of those supply. You got to rehire the pilots. You got to unmothball mothball all of the jets. You got to build your inventory back up. And, you know, I think we're still working through a lot of that supply chain stuff at the moment.
1: And one more topic that has been interesting to watch as it's played out over the last couple of years is something that's been dubbed the Great Resignation. We've been hearing about it. People leaving the workforce in large numbers for some time now or taking new jobs. What are you watching in terms of labor force participation and wage growth to inform your projections?
2: So, again, for our listeners, you may not be familiar with the technical definition. Think of a labor force participation as just the percentage of the 16 years and older population that's either has a job or is actively looking for work, but still unemployed. So it's sort of everybody who's not a retiree, everybody who's not a full time student, And it's really kind of a measure of the extent the adult population is involved in market work. Right. And it's a strange measure because it excludes, you know, a very important kind of work, which is raising kids and running a household. Think of it as sort of engaging with the market for pay type of work. And it is something we're looking at very closely. So that labor force participation rate fell. It was about 63.5% pre-pandemic. It fell all the way to 60.2%, I think, by March or April of 2020. So what you had was, again, a lot of uncertainty, a pandemic that nobody knew how long it would take to play out. And you simply had people staying home, right? They were either kind of leaving the labor force. There were a lot of folks that were sort of afraid of infection on the job and said to themselves, you know, this isn't worth it. I'm kind of just going to sit this one out. And if you were, in fact, a household fortunate enough to have two incomes, typically one of the adults in that household could do that. So, very big drop in participation. And then also, we had very generous pandemic fiscal relief given to households, right? You know, a number of stimulus checks, which in effect allowed people just kind of sit it out. I don't want to get infected. There may be school closures, which mean there needs to be at least one adult at home with the kids. Again, we're going to live on one income. We're going to stay at home and we're going to kind of ride this out. So that allowed that participation rate to remain at a pretty low level for a while. But it's been rebounding. It's not yet back to pre-pandemic levels, but it's been rising pretty steadily. A lot of those fiscal stimulus checks are running out. Schools are reopening. And I think there's going to be a lot of households that are really going to need to go back into the paid labor force in order to keep things running. So our view is that that rise in labor force participation, people coming back to the labor market, it's going to continue. We're going to see a grind up in that rate. And we believe that that's something that will ultimately help keep a lid on wage growth. While people sit out of the labor force, those willing to go in have to get paid a bunch, right? That's why we've seen the strong wage growth. As more people come back, we believe some of this wage growth is going to moderate. And that's one of the things that will help keep a lid on inflation in general.
0: So despite all the different pressure points that have caused economic and market volatility, SWIB has really been able to generate strong returns over the past three years, hasn't it, Edwin?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, again, the bit of a silver lining to the negative returns that we've seen so far this year is that we really had a large cushion built up in in terms of the returns that we'd experienced over the previous three years. So we had three years running where the core trust fund delivered a return in excess of 15%. And... The performance was so strong that despite the fact that there is no cost of living adjustment to benefit payments, we were still able to deliver an over 7% increase in the benefit level, as everyone knows, because of that strong performance that we'd had over the previous three years. Again, I think as Leo had mentioned at some point earlier in the podcast, that the strong returns that we saw in equity markets in 2020 and 2021 certainly would have led one to believe that at some point there's going to be some payback and we are experiencing that now. But again, at least so far, it hasn't been enough to really offset fully the really great outsized returns that we experienced in 2019, 2020, and 2021. In fact, our friends over at ETF, their latest estimate is that we would have to lose 18% in order for there to be any kind of clawback on the benefit levels in terms of where they stand right now. And again, we're a little bit north of being down 10%, so we're quite a distance from that. Again, just it all just speaks to the nice cushion that we've been able to build up over the last several years. you know the fact that the WRS is fully funded and operates with that risk sharing model does mean that we don't have to be, chasing every dollar of return as you know, risk climbs. you know, and Instead, just are able to maintain our long-term asset allocation in disciplined fashion. And that has allowed us to generate reasonable returns that have helped us keep the contribution rates for employers and employees stable. And again, avoid large swings in the annuity adjustments for retirees. Well, there was a large swing, but in the right direction last year. But again, you know, if we were to be flat from here and see a minus 10, I mean, that looks like a very ugly number for a one-year return. And in fact, it is. But again, because we've done so well the previous three years, there still would be an upward adjustment to benefits coming in the following year. So I
0: guess the question that WR's participants are going to be asking is, how does all of this impact returns, both short-term and long-term looking forward?
3: Well, as you've mentioned, the silver lining to experiencing negative returns when it's the assets or the capital markets that aren't doing well is that the forward-looking returns actually go up because, again, as equity prices have come down, they become more attractive from a fundamental standpoint. And same thing true with fixed income with bond yields. So the higher the starting yield, then the higher the expected return And actually, in the early stages of our asset allocation work for the 2023 asset allocation, which we will be proposing in December of this year, it's now looking like the policy portfolio is expected to earn just about the actuarial return of 6.8% over the next 10 years. And again, that's a big difference from where we were last year, where the current asset allocation was only expected to return about 5.4%. So again, it's always a two-edged sword or two sides of the same coin that when you have negative capital market returns in the short run, that tends to increase the expectation going forward and vice versa. When you have the really good returns for several years, you do then again, at some point, expect a bit of a payback. And I think the fact that you know, we are in a position where our asset allocation is now expected to meet the actuarial target just suggests that we had a fairly good setting on our asset allocation because we again were able to capture the good capital market returns that occurred over the previous three years which again has helped us deliver increase in benefits to our retirees but at the same time we are now set up to actually again meet those longer term expectations the 6.8%, which is the return target that will give us the best chance of being able to keep contribution rates stable and continue delivering a bit of a increase in benefits on an annual basis.
1: Well, Edwin and Leo, certainly refreshing to hear something that's not terribly dire when it comes to the financial markets here. Sounds like members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can breathe a sigh of relief here, knowing that even though there's a lot of volatility in the markets, everything is looking a okay as far as their pension fund goes. So Edwin, Leo, thank you so much once again for being guests on this podcast. As always, a fascinating discussion. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks very much.
0: And thank you to all our listeners for checking out this episode of the SWIB podcast.
1: The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Our editor is Beatrice Lawrence, our producer, Larry Kilgore III. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Pricler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.